Before we begin this episode, I wanted to provide an additional disclaimer. As always, the views and opinions expressed on our podcast represent those of our guests and not any affiliate organizations. Loyola Stritch School of Medicine is a Jesuit institution, and the Jesuit faith does not support abortion. Therefore, the views expressed on this episode especially do not align with the values of Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi guys, and welcome back to Medicus. Today we will be discussing a very timely topic that has been in the news of late, namely the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. To shed some light on the medical and wider societal implications of this decision, I'm joined by Amy Perez, a nurse who provides abortion care and is a huge advocate for our right to abortion access. I also want to note that this is a super broad and thought-provoking topic that could take hours of conversation, but we will try to highlight just some of the many ideas related to abortion in this episode. So hi, Amy. It's so nice to get to chat with you about this hugely important topic. Can you introduce yourself, touching on your upbringing, education, and your current occupation? Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Raza. So my name is Amy Perez. I am currently an abortion care nurse. I graduated with my bachelor in science in nursing from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I have a Chicano and Latina Studies certificate. I relocated to Texas right after graduation. I didn't start in abortion care. I actually started in pediatric ICU. Right around the time I moved, that's when SB8, the Bounty Law, was enacted. And I kind of had to finish my orientation period before I could leave in good standing the PICU. So I was finally able to make the switch in February to abortion care. So I worked in the Planned Parenthood South Austin Clinic. It was an ambulatory uh, surgical center where we could provide abortions. But unfortunately, the day that Roe v. Wade was overturned, we were not able to continue to see patients. I was able to still see some post-abortion ultrasounds. And then once we were done with all of our follow-ups, we were let go. I am currently set to start traveling to other states to provide abortion relief care, meaning I'll be staffing clinics that have a high volume of Spanish-speaking uh, patients, and they don't have enough staff trained in abortion care. Yeah, that's wonderful that you're doing that, because I know now there's a lot of talk of other states that don't currently have restrictions being overburdened by travelers. So it's wonderful that, you know, you're continuing to follow your passion and doing such amazing work for your patients. So you've been an abortion advocate for as long as I've known you. How did you become involved with activism work and what are some ways you have advocated for the women across the U.S.? Well, I was born in Wisconsin and my parents split up the first time. They've been, you know, back and forth together mm -hmm. many times. And in one of those times, my mom decided to just take me to Mexico and, you know, have me there because, you know, she had more family that could look after me. Sure. I went to Mexico City to study um, high school and I was leaving with some relatives. And unfortunately, one of those relatives sexually assaulted me and I became pregnant. Mm -hmm. So I was around 16 years old at the time. The people that knew, the family members that they knew wanted me to continue the pregnancy. 
I was very adamant that I did not want to continue my pregnancy. Women in my family tended to have a teen pregnancy was very common. So I knew that right, you know, when it happens, they stop going to school and all the decisions that were most important for them get made by someone else. So I just did not want that for me. And I asked for the help of my friends and we went to markets to find, you know, herbs that could uh, make me have a miscarriage. That did not work. So I had to find an unlicensed provider because although Mexico City had just decriminalized abortion, I was a minor and I needed parental consent. I tried to go to Wisconsin and get an abortion and the parental notification laws were in place and I did not know how to get a judicial bypass because I did not speak English at the time. Mm -hmm. There were so many different barriers that I ended up contacting a med student that would do this. And then he really didn't know how to sedate me properly. And since he was doing everything by himself, did not own an autoclave. This was done at his apartment. So he was boiling the instruments in the stove. Obviously, that does not sterilize. I got septic uterus and thankfully I did not need a hysterectomy. But whenever you have a miscarriage or a suspected abortion in Mexico, no matter who you are, the cops get called. Wow. And I've seen and I've met many people that were poor and had miscarriages because they couldn't afford prenatal care and ended up spending a few years in jail. In Mexico, you're presumed guilty. So my nurse kind of walked into my room and was like, you're my daughter's age and I can't let this happen. So here's some clothes. This is how you get out of the hospital. She took out my IV. was like, here's your antibiotics. Get out because the cops are coming and they're going to put you in jail. So I did just that. And I remember prior to that, I was very pro-life, very, you know, oh my God, it's a baby. And like, yeah. like all of those cliches, because that's how I was raised. I was raised very conservative Catholic. And I remember I kept telling her, this is not me. This is just a very extenuating circumstance. I'm not like those other people. And then she put my stuff down and was like, do you really think that all those people chose this because it's really fun? And it was the exact moment when it sort of hit. So ever since I felt like I needed to say something, but I really didn't have a voice because there's so much shame and stigma, especially mm -hmm. in the Latino community. So I met in, at a conference, Amelia Bono, she is the co-founder of Shout Your Abortion. When I saw her abortion story, it went viral on Twitter. It was a big wake-up call because you're told, like, this doesn't really happen. It's like a rare occurrence. And then all of a sudden, a lot of people kept coming with their abortion stories. And I was like, holy crap, like, I'm not alone anymore. There's so many other people and they don't feel ashamed. And it was kind of like my wake-up call. She and I are very close now, and she's the reason I wanted to become an abortion provider because I learned also about all the different health disparities. So I went back to school to become a nurse so I could eventually open my own practice and provide abortion care. So it's been a long journey. I think when you met me, I was still very much in my shell, and I did not want anyone to know. And that was one of the first things I tell people. Yeah, it's been wonderful, you know, to see you blossom on social media and all the awareness you're spreading all the time, going to rallies, connecting with people. You're right. When I met you, you were much more reserved and not as comfortable being outspoken about this topic. And I think it's so beautiful how you've used such a horrific experience as a kid to, you know, really harness that into something that's helping people. Getting into kind of the Supreme Court decision, for those who may not know, can you maybe give a brief history of the original case of Roe v. Wade, as well as the Supreme Court decision to overturn it last month? 
Yeah, so Rotary started because of a woman here in Texas wanted to obtain an abortion, and some officials were arguing that the law did not allow her to have an abortion, and she kept arguing that it was her right to privacy within the Constitution that allowed her to make that decision. So the case made it all the way to the Supreme Court in 1973, I believe, and then the Supreme Court at that time found that under the 14th Amendment, abortion and the right to choose was protected under that 14th Amendment, right? Mm-hmm. So later in 1992, there was another case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in which there was a ban on abortion and there were a lot of different restrictions that Pennsylvania wanted to put in place. The Supreme Court then kind of split the baby in that decision where it agreed to not ban abortion before viability, which is around 24 weeks, but it also gave the states freedom to impose different restrictions, uh, as long as it didn't impose an undue burden on the person seeking abortion. And that's in and of itself problematic, because what is undue burden for you may not look the same for me, because every single person has access to different resources. So that in itself brought a whole lot of trap laws that targeted regulation of abortion providers into place. And even though abortion was legal in most of the country, it was not accessible by any means, unless you had money, U.S. citizenship and means to travel and money to pay. So that's when the waiting periods, mandatory ultrasounds, all of those things got into place. Mm -hmm. And now the Dobbs decision is about one clinic in Mississippi suing their health officials to get the 15-week ban thrown out, arguing that under the previous president of Roe v. Wade and Casey, that ban was unconstitutional. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court decided to overlook the legality and just pretty much said that, no, it's up to the states and the states can enact whatever, you know, regulations they want, uh, whether they want to make it legal or not, and putting the decision on the elected officials. So could you comment on how this decision might impact women's health and society at large? Well, it's not just women, anybody that has a uterus and the capability to get pregnant, right? So I feel like Yes, the majority of people obtaining abortions are women, but I tend to not frame this as a women's issue because it does affect trans and non-binary folks. It affects everyone that don't have the means to travel. Like I live in Texas and a lot of my patients cannot travel out of state because they are undocumented. Sure. And there are ICE checkpoints, which there aren't many in other states further north, right? So they're afraid to get deported, so they don't go. They don't speak English and they don't know they can get an interpreter, so they don't go. Some people don't have transportation, so they can't really travel out of state. They cannot afford to take days off. If they have children, they don't have the money to buy childcare, the meals, the lodging. Right. It's a big expense. And although there are certain abortion funds that could potentially help you, they don't cover everything. And even then, if you want to take off days of work, it can be a challenge because you're in an at-will state and they can fire you for whatever reason. You know, having an abortion does not protect you from being fired. They can decide whether or not to take your doctor's note. And there's another issue of how do you keep this private? So it's going to definitely affect also people living under a reproductive coercion and reproductive violence. A lot of abortions that I help facilitate were the product of sexual assault or their partner refusing to wear a condom, taking the condom off, messing up with their birth control. So we would provide them an abortion and then we would give them an invisible method like an implant or an IUD. Mm -hmm. And now we can't necessarily help them anymore because we know that violence and your likelihood of dying in a violent relationship 
goes up significantly when you're pregnant. It has multiple implications that are not even being discussed. If you have a health condition, if you don't have health insurance, you can't afford to do that. Undocumented people may not even apply for assistance, right? Yeah, because they're afraid that they might be found. And with everything that the Trump administration has done in the past, I can understand why they're afraid of ending in those camps or being separated from their families or being just flat out deported. And now you're deported and pregnant. Yeah, it's just kind of like a perfect storm coming together of all of these consequences stemming from this decision. So something that can easily be overlooked in discussion surrounding abortion is that sometimes an abortion is the only option as a life-saving treatment. So for example, ectopic pregnancies where the embryo implants outside the uterus, which can rupture, of course, and lead to severe internal bleeding. And then there's also, as you would know, missed miscarriages, right? Where the fetus stops developing, but the body doesn't expel the tissue. And that can, of course, lead to sepsis and can be fatal. So both of these conditions, among others, can be fatal to the mother. And while some states with anti-abortion laws do make exceptions for life-saving treatment, it becomes, I think, a very gray area because who is to decide what's life-saving and whose life is worth saving, right? Do you foresee that in the future it would be up to the medical team, lawyers, governments? Can you comment on how this could lead to fear of prosecution and undue harm? Well, it's already happened. And even when Roe was not a return, but SBA was in effect, we had to be really careful to every medical decision we took. And I should not have to base my nursing judgment on an archaic law made by people who don't understand basic biology, right? So part of the things that people don't understand about ectopic pregnancy, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. It can implant in the tube, it can implant in the ovary, and it can even implant in the cervix, right? So depending on the location and how pregnant you are, like how far along, that's going to determine when it ruptures. And when it ruptures, especially the tubes are not really that flexible. That's when you're going to be bleeding internally. And people don't really realize how much blood you can hold in your abdominal cavity before you realize that you're in trouble. If I have an ectopic pregnancy, if there is a suspicion of ectopic pregnancy, something um, and the ultrasound is kind of hard to see unless it's big enough. Typically get a positive pregnancy test, but we can't see anything in the ultrasound. We see an empty uterus. Sure. Then we draw blood. And if the blood doesn't behave accordingly, when you draw blood, when you uh, trend the hormones, you want to see it at least double in a normally growing pregnancy every 48 hours. Now, if the numbers go up significantly, like they just shoot up, you're more likely seeing a molar pregnancy. And if the numbers go up but just a tiny bit and they kind of plateau, you're likely looking at an ectopic pregnancy. And one of the treatments for that is a diagnostic aspiration. Mm-hmm. Now, You have to be very clear with the patient because if this happens to not be an ectopic, you're emptying the uterus and therefore terminating pregnancy. Now, with this law into place, do you think that a medical team is going to be super comfortable doing a diagnostic aspiration anymore? I would not want to risk my license. Normally, I would be, sweet, let's do a diagnostic aspiration. And if we can confirm that the villa is there and all the structures that we need to see, we can confirm the pregnancy is out and the danger has passed. Mm-hmm. But if it's a normally growing pregnancy and you did that, now in the state of Texas, that would be a felony. And you can't have a license if you have a felony. I would not want to risk my life. <laughs> and, you know, under SB8, if you terminate a pregnancy beyond viability, what they 
consider viability is not necessarily viability itself. It's the fetal heart tones. And it's usually referred to as a six-week ban, but I've seen it appear as early as five weeks, three days. And once I see that flicker on the ultrasound, we're done. You know, I can't do anything. Well, and the issue too, right, is that women, by and large, don't know that they're pregnant at six weeks. No, they don't. And because they usually two weeks after implantation, you can have post-implantation bleeding. And some mm-hmm. people be like, oh, my period was kind of light this month, right? Yeah. It's a challenge. And also, like, if you don't track your period, if your period is a little bit irregular, because athletes can miss their periods because they do so much exercise, changes in sleep, stress, medical conditions, all sorts of things. And you may notice when it's too late. But yeah, I think that one of the biggest implications is that for fear of criminalization, people are going to skip medical care because they wouldn't want to leave a trace. They wouldn't want to go through something or their medical team may not be able to help them. Because yes, ectopic pregnancy is not, the treatment is not necessarily allowed. We can still do methotrexate, but how can you assure your patient that they're not going to get prosecuted? How can you have your patients trust you when they don't know if you're going to turn them in? How can you freely make decisions without being afraid of liability and under SBA being brought a $10,000 lawsuit? Anybody can basically sue you. It's a big deal. You know, I don't know how much doctors make, but like nurses don't make that much money to have like $10,000 cash just being ready to like surrender in a lawsuit plus legal fees. Absolutely not. I think this is going to be a huge issue, you know, with doctors and nurses and other medical care providers fearing the consequences. And again, patients, we don't know at which point patients are going to become the target for prosecution. They've done it already. Even though Roe v. Wade hasn't been overturned until very recently, Mm -hmm. we've also seen cases in which people have had self-managed abortions and then they get prosecuted for it. That sometimes even if you have a stillbirth, they can charge you with child endangerment and all these bogus charges. You can always get charged. If you need an overzealous prosecutor who really believes in whatever cause <laughs> they're serving. So um, I think one of the most famous cases is Kirby Patel. I believe uh, she spent some time in jail for self-managing an abortion at home and then disposing of the fetus because people don't know how to properly dispose of medical waste, right? So it is a challenge for sure. Most definitely. So we talked about a little bit of the you know implications on society economy and medicine. But I think another hugely overlooked implication would be who is going to support the babies, right? Whose families did not want them for financial reasons. You touched on that. A lot of people choose abortion because they simply cannot care for another human life. So who's going to, you know, improve and expand adoption programs and childcare programs? I think For these reasons, some argue that Roe v. Wade does not promote life, but rather it promotes birth. What do you make of this statement? Well, that is very accurate because there isn't a universal parental leave. There is no guaranteed college for everyone type thing. I mean, I graduated with 45K in student loans in my nursing program, even though I had a full ride because I still needed to pay for living expenses and not work full time when you go to a nursing program or pretty much any program if you really want to get good grades and have a student life and all of that mm-hmm. jazz. But there's also the issue of repeating cycles of violence, being absent. There's this 
absurd and completely toxic rhetoric of, oh my God, mothers can do everything or parents can do everything. They can like go to school, have two jobs and like, no, just because somebody can strain themselves so thin that they could make this sort of work. Maybe you can, maybe you have all the resources, the emotional intelligence, the great support system, and you can do all of that. Great. Not everybody does. And one of the best examples that I have is someone in my family did not want to have their kid. They were forced to give birth. At the time, I was very young and I couldn't like advocate. I was not very outspoken. Now they're married. They have more children. And that child constantly asked me, hey, I noticed that my mom doesn't have me on their screensaver, but has my siblings on it. Um, hey, my mom did not celebrate my birthday this year. Do you think you could get me a cake? All of these things, and I continue to make excuses for this family member, right? So that the child doesn't feel like they're not loved, but specifically they've, they've asked, if my mom did not want me, why did she have me? And my relative is not abusive, is not a bad person by any means, but she was so scarred by having to give birth that she resents the child for all the opportunities that she did not have. And many people would be like, well, she shouldn't have sex in the first place. Sex ed, where I lived, was non-existent. Not in school, not in your family. Like when I had my period, I thought I was dying. <laughs> I had endometriosis. So my first period was like bloody, lasted for two weeks, was completely painful. And I thought I was dying. And my mom was like, oh, that means you're a woman now. Here's a pad. You can I use tampons because they take away your virginity. But mom, what's virginity? You don't need to know that. All you need to know is you lose it. I'm going to kill you. So... For a time, I thought that maybe like kissing could get you pregnant. So I wouldn't let dudes like within six feet from me at some point. And then you sort of like start getting your sex set from wrong sources, like from mm -hmm. a friend or a friend, from the internet. This particular relative read that if you have sex on the first day of your period, you will not get pregnant. And if it's your first time, you won't get pregnant. So she was like, bingo, it's the first day of my period and it's the first time I do it. So I won't get pregnant. Oh my. Yeah. And you know, is children raising children? Cause yeah, teenagers are really not done growing and I don't think you should put that burden onto them and economically shrinks your opportunities. Uh, it puts a burden on the system, a system that is not designed to support families whatsoever. I hate when people tell me, like, give it up for adoption. Well, how many children age out of foster care every year? This country does not support adoption or families in any way, shape, or form. So I, in, until that system is in place and not even, mm -hmm. we can't pretend that it's okay to bring a bunch of children into this world to parents who do not want them. Yeah, and not only that fact that adoption isn't really supported in this country financially, but that assumes that it's easy to give up a child for adoption, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I'm not a mother, so I can't really comment, but I can't imagine going through nine months of pregnancy, delivering a baby, the emotional connection you must have to this human being. It's not as simple as here, take it. I don't want it. It's just that you are not in a position to support this. Yeah. And that is also stigmatized. Oh, how could you have given up your baby? You're a terrible mother. Yeah. She her baby. What's their problem? You know, it's we love to have our cake and eat it. So it, it, it really isn't an easy way. And I feel like we are shaming pregnant people for something that it takes two to make. I don't see anybody criminalizing Viagra. I don't see anybody criminalizing taking the condom off. 
It's crazy that the punishment for having a self-managed abortion or me providing an abortion is higher than a sexual assault, right? It's, Absolutely. I feel like we're not doing right by our patients. And I and I say we as a medical professional because until very recently with the whole Roe v. Wade being overturned, the American Society of Gynecologists and the major medical outlets were very shy about saying abortion. They were very like, oh, yeah, pro women's rights or whatever, but they never like came out and say, oh, yeah, we support abortion until very recently. So it's still very stigmatized within the medical community as well. I agree. Speaking of children, can you comment on the physical and psychological trauma of being forced to give birth as a child? As there have been cases of children in their preteen and early teen years giving birth and I looked it up and I guess the youngest child to give birth was only five years old. Five years old, yeah. It is extremely damaging. I mean, even as a teenager, I remember I had hyperemesis gravida, which I was throwing up everything, even water. I couldn't keep anything down. I was stressed constantly. I was so tired. Pregnancies in my family are high risk. It was a constant stress in my body. And I was 16 when I worked in the pediatric ICU. For the few children that were there, that were conscious, we had child life specialist and therapy dogs and all of these beautiful interventions. She had to spend at least half an hour trying to explain to a five-year-old what an injection was for her insulin because she was recently diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and was in DKA. You know, we had to be really careful not to like traumatize a child because then they wouldn't trust us and we, we did not want to create these horrible memories. We wanted to make sure that these children were safe and felt cared for. But how do you explain? You know, make them understand that they were assaulted, number one, because some children don't know what happened to them. Right. Number two, how do you tell them that there's another child, basically? Or I don't like to call fetuses children, but how are you going to make sense of it? You know, I asked someone in child life when I read that story and they were like, I have no idea. How would I even begin to explain that? Right. And most people would agree that it would be detrimental, significantly detrimental and life threatening to force a five year old to give birth. They're not even physically developed yet to be no, able to do that. The is extremely narrow, so that would have had to be a C section. Pretty sure it was a premature delivery because her uterus is not even fully grown yet. So that means C section, that's major surgery at age five. It's just so many things that don't make sense. Whereas we could have given her pills and that would have been it. Mm-hmm. Not saying that, you know, you wouldn't have to explain things. You would have. But it's different to take two pills, two sets of pills, than going a C-section or being induced. Speaking of pills, what about over-the-counter treatments, you know, like the morning after pill and the prescription abortion pills, which individuals could receive via mail? Could there possibly be legal ramifications for doing so, could someone be prosecuted for taking abortion medication by themselves? Depends on which state you live. So first of all, I kind of want to make the distinction that abortion pills and the emergency contraception are not the same thing. Emergency contraception works by suppressing ovulation and kind of speeding up the process of uh, the shedding of the uterus so that there's no implantation. However, if you've already ovulated, it becomes significantly less effective. So now we also have the weight limit. So we have two pills that are designed to prevent pregnancy after unprotected sex. And unprotected sex is just an umbrella term by, you know, forgot to take my pill, the condom broke, all of that stuff. Plan B has a weight limit. So if you weigh more than 165 pounds, which is a significant 
portion of the population, it loses a lot of effectiveness. And you can use it up to 72 hours after unprotected sex. However, if you wait more than 165 or your BMI is above 25, either or, you can use it. It's just not going to be as effective. You might need ELA. And ELA, unlike Plan B, is prescription only. It's a different kind of hormone. It's an anti-progesterone. It's upistral acetate and basically is stronger. You can use it if you weigh more than that. And if your BMI is above 25, after you go beyond 30-ish, that's when it starts losing effectiveness as well. And then you can use it up to five days after unprotected sex. But not many people know about that one because it's, you know, prescription only and it's kind of hard to get. Could you get prosecuted for using Plan B? Not necessarily, no. Could you get prosecuted for ordering pills by mail in red states? Absolutely, depending on what your legislation says. So here in Texas, the providers are the ones that are being criminalized. I do not know every particular state law, but if already they were prosecuting people when Roe v. Wade was not overturned, I can definitely see people getting prosecuted for either getting them or for aiding and abetting, meaning... I'm going to lend you my address, get the pills shipped here, and we can go through your process together. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you don't have money to buy them. Maybe I front you the money and you can pay me later. If I really, really want to mess with you, if I am that kind of prosecutor, I'm going to use every shred of evidence. You're texting, you're browsing data, your GPS location, your credit card purchases, anything this uh, digital print nowadays, mm-hmm. anything can be used against you. And I think that it really is going to depend on where you live and how dedicated your legislation is and your police department to go after you. I know that Austin, in order to prevent that, passed the Race Act, which in a sense decriminalizes self-managed abortions for people seeking them. Not necessarily the providers themselves, because we know that federal law and state law trumps city ordinances. But long story short, step in the right direction. Not many other people or legislations are doing the same thing, unfortunately. Hmm. That's really interesting. So Justice Alito stated in the leaked opinion prior to the ruling that what distinguishes the right to an abortion from other rights is the abortion destroys what those decisions call potential life. And what the law at issue in this case regards the life of an unborn human being. This interpretation could have implications not only for abortion services, but also to reproductive services, such as in vitro fertilization, since destruction of frozen embryos could be interpreted as the destruction of potential life. Can you comment on how this could impact family planning and the already declining population growth rate in the U.S.? Well, I mean, we know that the people who have fertility problems need to make several embryos mm-hmm. and then we see who implants. And let's say that this round someone implanted and we have a successful pregnancy, then the couple can decide whether they freeze the embryos for future pregnancies and pay the storage fees or destroy the embryos. Who's going to have custody of those embryos? Who is going to say, oh, we're going to keep them just fertilized and force people to pay the storage fee? Or are we actually going to force them to implant the embryos? Like there's so many different unknowns that unfortunately I can't answer, but the whole potential life should also apply to people who are already here 
Uh, what about my potential life to go to grad school and become an abortion provider? What about, and I know that I don't like when I draw this line, right? But people usually tell me in this other side of the argument, oh, life begins at conception is one cell. Well, I mean, bacteria are life. If you think about it and when you get sick, I give you antibiotics. So which is it? We pick and choose what we want, right? Yeah. Think about organ donation. You need my consent. I can be brain dead. My family or I have to have some kind of paperwork already in place. As a medical professional, I can't just like scout the hospitals and be like, I need this man's liver right here because my patient is going to die otherwise. I can't just take organs from people without their consent. But why is it okay for you to be forced to have a child when you are not ready? And I understand their sentiment and that they firmly believe that that is wrong. As a Catholic person, I understand that. But the whole purpose of me wanting to be an abortion provider is so that I can provide compassion and empathy for people already going a very difficult decision. And it shouldn't be traumatic either. I feel like a lot of the things that I see around this discussion is my patients feeling guilty for not feeling guilty. That's just the stigma surrounding this. It doesn't have to be a horrible experience. This whole debate on like, what ifs? I feel like I liked medicine and nursing for the fact that like I can run tests, right? And then I can make my differential diagnosis and determine what your possible treatment is. I can't just get someone coughing and say, oh, this could be influenza, but it could also be COVID, but it could also be Ebola. So I'm going to treat you for all of them because what if? That doesn't make any sense, right? Right. So I feel like we're getting lost in the what if this child were to be the new Pope or whatever? What if this is a blessing? What if it isn't? Right. And I don't think it's up to me as a medical professional to decide what's best for my patients. I think it's, you know, what you're able to literally carry, what you're able to undertake. And it shouldn't be up to me, should not be up to the government, should not be up to anyone but my patient to decide what's best for them. Thank you so much for that, Amy. So are there any resources you would like to share with patients and providers about abortion, whether it's educational or regarding access? Yeah, I would encourage providers, doctors and nurses alike to actually read up on it. I recently met a doctor who had no idea that we have pills now. She kept talking about coat hangers and, you know, mechanical methods. And she wasn't that old. She was in her mid-30s, just graduated not too long ago. And she had no idea that you could have an abortion with pills. You know, I think that it's important to put the word out there. There's also something called advanced provision. You can get abortion pills even if you're not pregnant. They have a shelf life between two or three years, depending on who the manufacturer is. You can just keep them in your drawer. The first dose is your Mifeplex. You take that just orally, like you would take a Tylenol, right? And then 24 to 48 hours later, you can dissolve four pills in your mouth. You swish and swallow after 30 minutes. And then you will start bleeding within the first six. If you don't have bleeding within the first 24 hours, you have to call your provider and you might need another dose of misoprostol because, you know, everybody's different. In the U.S., the CDC kind of caps the use for abortion pills up to 11 weeks. Some mm-hmm. people interpret it as 12. But in Europe, it's been used up to 15 weeks or more. But, you know, after you get to that point, it's less effective. Yeah. And you need more misoprostol. You need more care. Uh, It's a little bit harder to self-manage in in a sense. But it's what can get you into trouble is the disposal of the fetal remains that Mm -hmm. can be thrown in jail. A lot of different moving pieces, right? So what I want people to understand is to learn about the process. It's a very safe process. It's actually safer than giving birth. 
actually Tylenol lands more people in the hospital than abortion pills. I would like people to know about Plan C pills. So it's an Instagram profile. It also has a website and it teaches you how to get them from a safe source, right? Because we do know that there are a lot of scammer or a lot of people who prey on vulnerable people. It's an educational website. There's this online pharmacies who provide them. There's this like telehealth for people who live in a blue state that can actually access it mail forwarding, so many other things, and it outlines the process of how it is. There's also the aid access. Aid access provides a sliding scale. So if you can't pay for an abortion, sometimes they're like, we will cover the cost. Freedom Fund is a new fund that is also covering the cost for telehealth appointments. And you get, when you go through Plan C, the the aid access folks, you get a consult with a provider. When you go to online pharmacies, you don't have a provider. So that's kind of like a downside, but they're also faster. All of these pills are coming from overseas. So there's very little that the Supreme Court can do to stop us. The if, how, and when legal fund, it's lawyers that work pro bono to help people make reproductive choices and that are being targeted and charged. Or maybe you have a questions like, hey, what if, you know, hypothetically, I went to manage my abortion this way. I live in this state. What are my risks? And they help you mitigate your risk and understand. So there's a few resources. Thank you so much. And we'll be sure to put them all on the notes for this podcast so people can easily access. Just wanted to say thank you so much, Amy, for coming on the podcast and for doing the work that you do, which is so essential. Thank you so much for being such a great advocate and provider. No, thank you for inviting me. I think that it's not really talked as much in the medical community. And it definitely, we should start talking about this. And like you said, I think we were talking earlier, regardless of on your views on the subject, it doesn't matter, right? Like, I, I don't know how the ethical principles of doctors are, but nurses have our first ethical principle is autonomy or respect for people. And that involves, despite our beliefs, empowering our patients to make the best decision for themselves and their families. So, you know, I would ask us to be hyper aware of our biases and realize that is not our decision to make whatever our patients do with their bodies. It's up to us to educate them and provide resources. And at the end of the day, we have to be okay with whatever decision they make. And if we can't provide the care that they need, we need to find someone who can. That is our responsibility. Absolutely. Thank you again. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.